Hi, and welcome to The Backlot. I'm Tova Leiter, moderator and director of the New York Film Academy guest lecture series. In this episode, we will take an in-depth look at one of my great guests and hear about her experience in the entertainment industry. And now, Eric Conner will take you through the highlights of this Q&A. Hi, I'm Eric Conner, senior instructor at New York Film Academy. And in this episode, we bring you an actress who went from Israeli television to playing several iconic roles in Hollywood, Ayelet Zurer. Today, you guys have so much power to not wait for a casting director to go into a video store and pick up a movie from Israel. You actually have way more control. Your creativity, that's all you need. Just make sure it's out there. His name is Cal, son of El. I know you're a dangerous man. That's why I brought a gun to a dinner date. You're not gonna offer to buy every painting in here so I can close up early? I actually tried that once. I am guilty of all I have confessed to. However, I do not believe they constituted any wrongdoing. I want to believe that evil will be punished. She's portrayed the mother of Superman and Ben-Hur, the wife of the villainous Kingpin on Netflix's Daredevil, and has acted for no less than Ron Howard and Steven Spielberg. You can also see her in Netflix's Shtiso, the surprise international hit that feels like if the show This Is Us was set in an Israeli Orthodox neighborhood. But before all that, her career got two unexpected boosts, in one case by not having to audition, and the other by being so good in a not-so-good film. I um, got a break uh, by entering theater school, not auditioning, which was really up my alley. Because <laughs> that factor was not, you know, something I could handle. And um, so I studied for three years and I totally fell in love with it. I did a commercial and the guy who had the schools came by, because he was also doing casting, and he said, listen, you gotta come to the school. I mean, you don't have to audition, just come and study. And I was like, okay. And so I started doing theater and did some Shakespeare and off-off-Broadway and then got a really great job in, back home in Israel and I thought, okay, do off-off-Broadway for seven bucks and walk dogs in New York or be on a, one of the greatest shows on television in my own country, in my own language, and I went back home and stayed there for a very long time with a really beautiful career, movies and TV and, and theater. One of the things I've done was in treatment. You should watch that because it's really great for writing and acting because it's two people in one room talking. So you can imagine 30 pages every week to learn by heart. That was outstanding. And we all thought nobody's going to watch that. Right. Nobody's going to watch two people in the room talking to each other. And each day is a different patient going to a shrink. And then, you know, I had, I had my child. And I thought, okay, great, I, this is my life, this is my career, it's not gonna go more than that or less than that, it's great, I was happy. And I got a call from a casting director saying you should come and read um, for a director that I can't tell you his name, for a movie that I can't tell you what the name of the movie is. <laughs> Very alluring. 
and she said, um, how, why don't you come and read? And I said, there's no way. My brain is not working. I'm learning 30 pages a week. I have a baby. No way. And she said, well, maybe I'll give you a hint. And then she said, Steven Spielberg. <laughs> so I was like, all right, let me, <laughs> let me organize um, some. Yeah. And I auditioned. Apparently, there was only two actresses he read for these roles. And uh, I got the part. And then the door kind of opened for me to, to do an international work. And this is a lesson for all of you if you're acting, or anything really, in life. Just say yes to things, you know? Yeah. I've done a very mediocre movie, and the actors were okay. Everything was just fine. Apparently, my role was somehow shining through. And it wasn't even in treatment where, you know, I was awarded for that or... or Nina's Tragedies, you know, again an award. It was just that tiny movie that somehow got to England, to a video store that shows how old I am. And, <laughs> and the casting director went to look for an Israeli actress and she found that video and she pulled that in. And I was shining because the whole thing was kind of eh. But I was shining apparently and <laughs> so that was good for me, <laughs> you know. And that's what they saw. Her TV show, In Treatment, known by its Hebrew name Betapul, is like Homeland, a show that started in Israel and then was adapted for an American audience. Her show, Stiesel, is also currently getting an American makeover. And similarly, Ayelet Zarer herself jumped back and forth from Israeli productions to Hollywood. Sometimes she's working on massive blockbusters, and other times she's looking for work. I feel choosing to come here killed for me the love for theater. For sure, because I could live in New York, maybe do that, but in LA, less. Then on top of that, I am not a person that is easy on leaving the family behind and going to, you know, a different city to yes. have a great career while my husband and my child are right. somewhere. There was not, so television was off the table for a very long time for me and only starting to become something that I'm okay with because it does take you away for a very long time. And the contracts that you have, you'll see if you're fortunate enough, they're sometimes draconians, you know? Yeah. You can sign up for like seven years, <laughs> you know? It's like, hey, take my kidney, you know? You know, it's crazy, I think. I think from, from like the roles aspect, I was able to sort of do many things, the big ones, sort of land in the same place, but the small things, less familiar things are different. The Garcia is different, and uh, Milada is very different, yes. and also the work I've done in Israel is very different. So if I'm lucky enough, there's some years that are great, and some years that go, okay, I'll have to take what I, you know, and some years you can actually choose, like really the things that are different. Even if her career has had its ups and downs, Mrs. Herrera's approach to auditioning remains consistent. If I prepare for an audition, I prepare as much as I can. The thing is, for you guys, things have changed dramatically. Because when I started, you used to go into a room with a director and actually bothered sitting with you and telling you what to do. Now they're getting tapes. And tapes are being sent all over the world. So sometimes you'll go to a casting director and that's great. And sometimes you have to self-tape. So you have to find someone who you are comfortable working with 
that can get you to the best performance you can have on your tape, you know. The good news is that you don't have so much anxiety walking into a room and having to perform in one or two takes. You can do 10, 20, and then choose the one that you like, right? The other side to this is that you don't have a director to tell you, actually, I'm looking for something else. Can you do this for me? So again, because your responsibility has grown since everything's changed, you better expand. You better try this, try that, and see what works for you, and look at the tape and ask yourself, what is real? What's the more natural? Where do I not try so hard? Each role requires its own level of preparation, none more so than when she's trying to capture the essence of a character from another time or another place. It's different from each and every role, but I'll choose one because this was, for me, the hardest one. Um, that was Milada. It's a very long historical story about a woman who actually lived um, around World War II. I had to study an accent for that. I had to study 120 pages because most of the movie I'm in. And I had to find who she was and what am I telling. So I usually start with the lines. I dig in and I dig in and I dig in and I study them by heart. And then I do the most technical work, which is how I sound. If I need a speech coach, then I'll go to her or him and I, I'll work with them. And through that voice, the placement of the, the voice, I'll discover a lot of things and make decisions. I usually go from scene to scene and ask myself what this is about. You know, what's the characters aiming at? What is she not seeing? What she thinks she's going for, but actually is not happening? I ask all the questions that I can ask about that specific situation. And I usually try to find the way in for myself into that world. I mean, how do you play a scene where you say goodbye to your family and you'll never see them again? I still remember the day you were born. Mother was so sick that father had to run and get a doctor. And then he placed you in my arms. When I held you, you were my first daughter. So much have changed. And just now, I am so sorry. I will never be able to repay you. When you think of me, know that I am always, always with you. What drives this person? Why do they do that? How can you be so driven to do something like that? So you have to go into history and say, okay, I live in a period where I can look at my phone and buy an Amazon address and not even wear it. <laughs> but these people actually saw the world in a different way and perceived relationship in a different way. So I have to go back to that. So wherever you go, there's so much to learn and to dig deep, that I think for me this is what's interesting because the human nature is endless. It's like an endless labyrinth, you know? You just go down one end and into another and keep asking questions. Then you get to set and everything you learned and thought you got, <laughs> you got to drop or you're in trouble. 
because you've got to work with the other person and what they give you. And hopefully they give you something good. And if it is good, then you really have to trust everything that you have already within you and just be in the moment. And another thing that helps being in the moment is, well, of course, knowing your lines, which Miss Herrera explains is far easier for some projects than others. I discovered that when it's well-written, it's really easy to learn. It's almost like one of the ways for me to understand if the material is good. So if something is not working, something is not right, or I'm not getting to the essence of it, or but usually it's just not right. When the material is really, really good, you kind of subconsciously get it. And then you practice, like you practice a song or the guitar. You do it again, and then you do it again. I find it really helpful to get a friend, run the lines, take a walk, then come back, run the lines again and realize that you know it. And then before I go to bed, I do the lines, and when I wake up, I do the lines again, because the mind, our brain, has a very beautiful ability to learn something, then stack it somewhere. So when you let it sit, and you don't panic and run it again and again and again and again endlessly, you work for an hour or two hours, and then you leave it, and you come back to that thing in the evening, evening and then the next morning you'll know it. Usually. For me. And friends. I sometimes have to pay for people to work with me because it's so boring, you know? <laughs> I have to, I, I like, would you come and help me? I'll pay you 10 bucks. Fifteen, <laughs> you know, and so sometimes uh, that's the way it works because I learn lines really well when I hear the other person say the line and I understand why I'm saying the lines to, to him, why I'm saying what I'm saying, you know. For me, that's how it works. Miss Herrera explained that she needs to remain focused and present on set. Otherwise, she might remember she actually gets stage fright. One of the things I've learned is to be very present because that's the number one most important, absolutely most important thing for an actor, between the action and the cut. So in those moments, I was able to eliminate everything that's out there, the sound, the fear, the self-doubt, the guy who didn't treat me well, <laughs> you know, anything really. The lights, yes. the audience, right. you know, all that stuff. I am not great in talking in front of people. I get better with age, but I was really shy, you know. If I didn't have a mask, I was not able to have a conversation on a stage with people. There's no way. So that's one thing that I've learned. And then the other thing is to tell a story. What's the beginning? Where I'm coming? What do I want to say? What the story wants to say? What's my job in that story? What is my role? What kind of like device am I? And then pull that device and say, I'm the one who's like, because of this, so it has to be this, you know? And once I was able to specify my job in the piece, I was having less and less ego about it and questions about it. I could just go in and in and in, hone in on what it is. Despite her love of the theater, Miss Herrera, like many actors, still gets nervous in front of crowds. 
which is surprising considering what kind of material she's performed. For like two years, I ran with vagina monologues. It's, uh, it used to be shocking 10 years ago, you know? Right. Oh my God, she says, she says vagina, you know? Um, but it was really about feminism and, and womenhood and, and all that stuff. And this show ran for three years. And I had monologues there with tears every night and laughter every night. I had to find what works for me on a regular basis. This was hard work. This was not just like, oh, the camera is on and let's just pretend to be and then tomorrow something completely different. It was really, so that brings something very specific to your um, professional life, I think. And also uh, just the ability to go in and in and in and look for something new and new and new and something else and, and ask yourself, is that it? Is that all I have? Maybe there's something else. Hmm, let's go in and in deeper and deeper and not be afraid to say, dropping this, I'm going into a different direction, you know? Because right. sometimes I feel like as human beings, if you find something that makes us happy or people say to you, oh, that's really good and you, you want to keep doing that yes. same thing, Yes. just because yes. you're loved because yes. we all wants to be you want we want to be loved Ayala Zerrer performed in the vagina monologues because well she was drawn to the challenging material but other times she has chosen projects based solely on who's attached so when certain directors like um, well, I don't know Steven Spielberg asked her to be in a project she said yes well, I said yes to Stephen before even reading, obviously. <laughs> I had to fly to London to read the script. <laughs> they didn't even send it to me, they were so, you know. And I said yes to Zack Snyder because I wanted to work with him and I thought, oh wow, Superman Mom, that's kind of cool. I mean, how bad can it be? But um, the material is what I respond to. And it's also my responsibility, really. Because I read the thing and I know what to do with it or I don't. And if I don't know what to do with it, I should probably meet with the director and tell them, I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> if you want, we could try, but I mean, I can come out of a room and say, this one is not for me. And sometimes I go out of a room and say, they're stupid if they don't take me. <laughs> and they don't. <laughs> so, you know, life is very weird that way. You get surprised many times when people approach you and they say, this is for you. Like Milada, a director called me from like, a guy I never met before said, hey, do you want to play this hero? She's Czech, you'll have to play English because it's for Netflix, but with a Czech accent and I'm thinking, why me? Right. Of all people, why did you get to me, you know? And then I thought, maybe because my mom is Czech or Slovakian, so he knew. So I, I met with him, I read the script and it was not good. And I said to him, you know, I think you, you need work, you know, it's not ready. And he said, no, no, I know, and please help me. And we actually worked and then I became producer on it just to, it was a whole thing, but I learned from it. But, you know, he was a first time director. I could not, I didn't see his work. He didn't have any work. He didn't even have a short. I think he had like other things to show. I had to trust my guts and say, this role is actually interesting for me. It's not well written, but I feel like I can do something with it. And so I went for it, you know? So it depends. You gotta listen to your gut. The gut knows. Miss Herrera got to see up close what makes Steven Spielberg, Steven Spielberg. The directors who are phenomenal give you space. 
they give you space, but in the right time, they'll always come to you and help you try something else or advise you with different approach. I remember in Munich, the first scene, Steven said, this, this, and this. And then also, she's not a crier. She's not like a woman nagging. And I was like, oh, I didn't think about that. I tried not to think about you, but I couldn't. I have the world's most boring job. What's going to happen to me? Well, they were just athletes. They went to the Olympics. Look what happened to them. What now? Now we're going to have a baby. She's actually, you know, just a person who puts a mirror to his face. She's not like, oh, don't go. You know, that kind of... Because he said he doesn't like that. He doesn't... Yes. He has that kind of a wife at home, and he likes to portray beautiful, strong women, you know? So I was like, okay, that's great. When a director doesn't give you what you want, they usually, it's their own anxiety that you need to be able to block yourself from. If they don't really know what they want or they're trying to manipulate you in a certain way, I think the best way to go is to just go with the flow. Give them what they want and always know what is the thing that you feel was right for you, where you felt the role, you felt the truth of it. Sometimes it's also hard to find the truth, you know. There's, I remember I've, I've done Ben-Hur and the director came to me and said, which take did you like? And I said, number three, and he said, no, four. And I was like, really? Why? And he said, because three, you were in control. And I said, really, what, what happened in four? And he said, in four, you got confused. Something happened, I don't know. But it was so real that I really liked it. <laughs> so, but he was really supportive. To give a safe space for your actor is the best possible way to work. It might not come as a surprise, but she loved working with Ron Howard and Tom Hanks on Angels and Demons. But the pressure of actually getting that role made the audition a little more stressful than most. The day of that audition, you can imagine how stressful this <laughs> is. I used to walk on the beach and repeatedly say my lines, because that's kind of how I let it sink and sink and sink and sink, become really, really automatic. Right. I don't need to think about it so I can see and everything else that's happening. Yes. Then a little seal, baby seal, was on the beach, strangled, and, and poor thing was almost dying. Because there was a whole thing, you know, it did not work, you know, the lines were not studied. <laughs> and we called the uh, wildlife, and then they came. And I went to the theater, and they asked me, so how was your day? And I told them I saved a seal. <laughs> so they noticed me, you know? <laughs> I didn't do that, you know, I didn't save the seal to, you know, tell a story, but maybe in the back of my mind I kind of did. But. <laughs> but we saved the seal, and then I went off to a small theater in Santa Monica, and the first thing I uh, stumbled upon was Tom Hanks. <laughs> and he's a very tall man, very, like, really charming and very charismatic. I was like, Hello, Mr. Hanks, and yes. yes, please, you know, and we read together, and sure, I don't know what happened, but it was really magical. I was not nervous, and uh, so again, there was a struggle, apparently. Some people chose me, some didn't, and eventually the people who chose me won, and that's how it goes, you know. <laughs> and of course, the shoot was incredible, because working with Tom was really something. I've, I've learned a lot from him.
if he has an idea, he will save it for the last, last minute before the camera is rolling and he will say to the director, hey, I thought. He wouldn't, like me, uh, come in the morning, knock, 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 can I talk to you, you know? Yes. No, that's, because the director, what I learned, has so much on his mind. Yes. But then, the last thing he wants is an actress with a great idea, Talk. you know? <laughs> no. No, it's a terrible thing. And, you know, sometimes you, in your own space, you think, oh, your little decision or your little creativity is the most important thing. Yes. It's not. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I learned that from him. That was shocking to me, that you have to have patience, because patience is not something I have at all. So I used to look at him with awe, like the way he would just... Right in the right place. It was like uh, pretty incredible. And he's also intelligent. His choices are intelligent. He's yes. so funny, wise, yeah. and generous. Yes. You know, he's a very, he's a leader, you know, so he kind of sets the tone. And it's really interesting to see that if you have a leader, the person who sets the tone at the top of the pyramid is how this pyramid is operating. So you want to have solid people around you you know, because yeah. I have other experiences where it wasn't that way. And it's always from the top of the pyramid. It, yes. The person there, you know, trickles down and he trickles down light for sure. Ms. Zerrer's journey as an actress brought her to another geek-tastic adaptation, the Netflix series Daredevil. As the wife of famed Marvel baddie Kingpin, she needed to find the humanity in a less than humane character. The first season, she's a gallery owner who stumbles upon this man who came to buy a painting. And it so happens that this painting is called the rabbit, rabbit in a snowstorm. That represents pretty much the emptiness of both their lives. People always ask me, how can we charge so much for what amounts to gradations of white? I tell them it's not about the artist's name or the skill required. Not even about the art itself. All that matters is... She asks him, how does, how does it make, it make you feel, feel to see that painting? And he says, lonely. It makes me feel alone. And they fall in love. So when I got this, I'm not a genre person. Yes. It's re really strange because I've done Men of Steel and, you know, Superman yes. stuff. And, but it's not my thing. I mean, I grew up on, on European movies with, you know, small stories and... Right. Phenomenal photography and definitely yes. no action. But I looked at the um, illustrations, the very, very old Daredevil, and I saw where she ends up. She ends up in a very, very dark place, and this is the beginning. So I thought to myself, this is kind of like Lady Macbeth. Where does she start? You know, she doesn't start in a dark place. You know, something happened. So for me, that's kind of the journey I took. I said, we started in a very full of light place. Naive, happy, I think that's why he falls in love also, because yeah. he sees the outside of that, and then, but they both kind of attract each other from the emptiness, the void. In TV, a show can go through a number of changes behind the scenes that can completely change the creative direction of the show. So in Daredevil season two, Miss Zerrer was nowhere to be seen. But when she returned to season three, she actually used this chaos behind the scenes to help fuel her performance. So what happened with Daredevil is that they had a showrunner on the first season, 
Then he got a great job that he wanted to do and he left. And I got a different showrunner who wrote something completely different. And then another showrunner, who I love, Eric, who wrote that specific season. So in that time, I was actually doing some other things, not even thinking about the show, you know? I've done one season. I was not called for the second one because there was, you know, it wasn't in the storyline. And then they approached me for the third. So I can't say anything about the middle part, but the third part, coming back to the character and trying to create something new with Vince that makes sense and still moves slightly forward for me as a character and what she's gone through was what I was looking for. And so when I met with Eric, he said, what happened to her? Where, where do you think she's at? And I gave him some answers, you know, where from imagination, he liked it. It was kind of combined into that world. So when I came back, I came back really heavy, you know? It's very strange. You know, when you have like a role that you played in one period of your life, then you took some time off, things happen in life. A lot of things happened to me in those year and a half or so, or so. A lot of stuff, personal stuff, you know? I was ready to come back and do something else with the same role. So I just brought in the, you know, the weight of being away, of questioning, of being alone, of coming back to a city you don't really know what you expect from. You know, I made, I made it personal in a way that's personal, but not, because I didn't come back to a city I don't like, you know. I like LA. <laughs> but I do hate New York. <laughs> you know, so I sort of used that energy of coming back to the city and into that world, and then coming back to Vince, who's a friend of mine by now, you know, and we work really well together. We don't need to do much. It's like, I, I know what it's doing and what he's thinking, you know? So actually to try to push him away from our friendship was that, that was the struggle, you know? How do you stay cold and reserved and, yeah. Even as Daredevil went through multiple showrunners, one thing unfortunately remained the same, a lack of diversity behind the camera. I think sometimes in order to make a change, you have to take three steps forward to go back to one step where kind of you need to be. And so that happened, or happening with diversity. A lot of roles are being divided now. Lots of roles that I used to get are now, they're saying, yeah, you're, you're white. I'm like, but I'm right for the role, but no, you know? So that should happen, you know? That's, it's, it's long due, I think. And with women, women writers, women directors, because I mean, I don't think a man can play a woman, so that's not a problem here. So we're talking like the very specific jobs, right? You can criticize someone because they're weak or because you don't like them or because they're women. These are just words, just words. It's sometimes it's envy, sometimes it's just fear. The truth of the matter is that, yes, I never worked with a female director, ever. I've been an actress for, no, once in vagina monologue. I mean, can you imagine with a man? I mean, come on. But yeah, on movies, on television, no. So obviously it's time. And yes, it's going to take some jobs from men, but what can you do? I mean, 
I love men, I worked with great men, I love women. I think it's just, it's not fair, it's not balanced. I mean, a woman can direct uh, Daredevil. There was no woman on that set. Ayala Zarir's career has taken her all over the world. She's been part of amazing projects like Munich and part of projects that might have been less than perfect. And through it all, she's made sure never to lose sight of what matters most. You got to do what you got to do. You have to find the balance in life. I feel like that's the struggle, really. I mean, most of you are really young, and it doesn't get any better. <laughs> no, it just doesn't. It just changes. <laughs> you have to find balance all the time. If your girlfriend is wanting to go to a movie, but you have to learn your lines, you gotta find the balance because she might drop you, you know. <laughs> but you gotta learn the lines because that. So you have to find, you know, the voice in yourself saying, okay, what do I do to create a, a, a positive life experience where I do what I have to do for myself and for my life and to advance, but still have a life, you know. So that thing. And how do you keep yourself? sane in a very competitive reality where, you know, people who were in school with you now are getting this amazing role and Jeremy Renner, who I was in this tiny little movie, is nominated for the Oscars and, you know, it's great for him, then your turn will come. It's all about balance and keeping yourself sane and loved and creative. I have to say, that is great advice for everyone, actor or not. We want to thank Ayala Zarrera for entertaining audiences all around the world and for chatting with our students here in Los Angeles. And thanks, of course, to all of you for listening. She's got a ton of work over on Netflix. Whether you prefer to see her in a superhero show, a drama set in an orthodox neighborhood in Israel, or in a political drama like Mulata, definitely check it out. This episode was based on the Q&A moderated by Toba Leiter. To watch the full interview or to see our other Q&As, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash New York Film Academy. This episode was written by me, Eric Connor, edited and mixed by Christian Hayden. Our creative director is David Andrew Nelson, who also produced this episode with Christian Hayden and myself. Executive produced by Toba Leiter, John Sherlock, and Dan Mackler. A special thanks to our events department, Saja Johnson, and the staff and crew who made this possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at myfa.edu. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. See you next time.